Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Todd Rose. Dr. Rose is the director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He and co-author Ogi Ogis are also the co-founders of the Dark Horse Project, which focuses on individuals who achieve success in a way that no one saw coming. They didn't follow the conventional or standardized path. Their findings inspired their new book, Dark Horse. In this episode, Dr. Rose talks about some of their findings and the implications of moving from a standardization model to a dark horse model on an institutional scale. So joining us today in our offices in New York, we have Todd Rose, who is one of the co-authors of Dark Horse, and thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, So to start off, to give us some context for the book, can you tell us a little bit about the Dark Horse Project? Yeah, the the Dark Horse Project is a a project that uh, we started in my lab at, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and it was um, started off as a passion project, really interested in people who were successful that kind of had unconventional paths to that success. And the question was, you know, could we learn anything about uh, their journeys that might be useful for all of us? Or were they just so idiosyncratic that that's just who they are, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so over the last uh, three years, we've studied hundreds of individuals from all walks of life um, with all kinds of different ambitions. And um, I think we've figured out some things that we think are pretty interesting. That's great. Um, and you talked about how, you know, you learn from these dark horses. And you mentioned in the intro of the book that people tend to not really look at dark horses and learn from them. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I think by their nature, right, like they're, they're defined in the fact that they are successful and no one saw them coming, right? Mm-hmm. They just kind of burst onto the scene. And so we're, we think that's kind of pretty interesting. I think it's almost like a little bit of like a, a carnival kind of like, oh, that's curious, uh-huh. right? Wow. But the fact that we didn't see them coming suggests that it, it's so unpredictable, you know, kind of lucky one-off that we can sort of say good for you and then walk away from it, right? Mm-hmm. And so for our own lives, we think we probably have to look somewhere else for guidance. Mm. And so what is the primary sort of unifying factor that you found yeah. in these dark horses? So I'll tell you what, what it wasn't, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, I think... Uh, you know, full disclosure, I was just wrong about what I thought was going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. So when we started, uh, I thought that the thing they'd have in common is that they would all have some kind of personality characteristic that allowed them to kind of buck the system and not mind. So I had in mind someone like a Richard Branson or a Steve Jobs. You know, mm-hmm. they kind of get a little pleasure out of like doing it their mm-hmm. way. And it turned out pretty quickly that wasn't true, um, that they had all kinds of personalities. Some were timid, some were outgoing, um, some were mavericks. Uh, but what emerged pretty clearly was something just we didn't expect, which is dark horses were people who really prioritized personal fulfillment over conventional notions of success. And it's that prioritizing fulfillment that ends up putting them on very individual paths to achieve that. It's also what ultimately allows them to be both successful and happy. Mm-hmm. So in terms of this um, pursuit of fulfillment, um, you talk about this in the book. You talk about how, in general, we should move towards more of a dark horse mode of thinking about nurturing talent, um, attaining fulfillment. 
But this concept of pursuing fulfillment, pursuing happiness has been around a while, as you mentioned in the book, especially with the Declaration of Independence, yeah. you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. So what makes your proposition different than what people have been doing? Yeah, uh, two things, actually. So you're right. Like There have been, there have been plenty of books on success, you know, plenty of books on happiness and mm-hmm. a few on Following fulfillment. Following your passion. Yeah. yeah, it's like follow your bliss, everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, um, the things that were always um, challenging to me about those kind of books and, and, and things were that when they give advice, they end up being fairly generic, even if they're well-intentioned, because mm-hmm. when it's based on research, it tends to be based on research using group averages, right, which are just not that useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book we started with something very different, right? We come from this science of individuality, mm-hmm. both of us, and um, which is focused on the idea that your individuality matters. And we're looking for insights that allow anyone to harness that in service of a more fulfilling and, and successful life. So I don't think that book's been written yeah, <laughs> before. And um, what I'm most proud of is um, I was looking for, it has to be practical. Like you've got to, you're going to have to be able to do this no matter if you are you know, financially well off and in a good position or just scraping by. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you mentioned averages. So you are a co-author in this book, mm-hmm. um, but your previous book, The End of Average, was you alone. So how does this book build off of that for you? So, yeah, so the um, I see these two books as like bookends of the things that I care about most. Mm-hmm. So End of Average is revealing this flaw that we've had in the way we've thought about people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we built systems around this idea that there's an average person, and it turns out not to be true. And we've gotten over that in medicine. Now we have precision medicine, and we're mm-hmm. moving to personalized learning. And you know, and I felt like the, the public needed to understand that shift toward individuality, not as individualism or selfishness, just as the dignity of each individual mm-hmm. and their uniqueness and that it matters. Um, but what's left there unsaid is, like, to what end? So if we understand individuality better, what are we going to use it for, Right. You could just as easily imagine that somebody uses that to manipulate you. I can, you know, I know more about you. I can build systems that get you to do what I want. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think that the best thing we can put individuality to work toward is actually a more fulfilling life, right? And since fulfillment is very personal, right, there's not a cookie cutter model for that. It's fundamentally based on an understanding of your own individuality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in terms of pursuing fulfillment, um, Obviously, it's something very important. You have to pursue something that you deeply care about, something that, you know, makes you happy. Is there a distinction between pursuing something that's fulfilling in the sense you talk about in the book and just simple pleasure-seeking? Absolutely. So um, while fulfilling stuff can be pleasurable, that's not really the point, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's really about the deep satisfaction that comes from accomplishing things that you care about, right? Um, for me personally, I think of it the way I feel if I read a good book, mm-hmm. like I immediately want to share it with someone else. I want them to have that same feeling. You know, mm-hmm. it's not this, it's not this temporary pleasure that goes away. Right. I like steak, but if I eat that very long, I eventually don't like it. I get sick, <laughs> right. Um, I think that fulfillment is, is, is so much more substantive than that. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and so when I think about that, it's like, it's the feeling again of that satisfaction of accomplishing things that matter to you. Um, and they can be big and small, right? Everyday things all the way to like big, big aspirations. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned um, later on in the book, you say that the supreme individual obligation of a person is personal accountability. So does that tie into differentiating the two? Yeah, yeah. So it's a really important point, right? Because you could, mm-hmm. you could think of this call for personal fulfillment as 
more of the kind of like do whatever feels good, you know, mm -hmm. and almost like you don't really have an obligation to anybody else, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's definitely not what we mean, right? Um, and for us, the the thing that differentiates that is this personal responsibility. So like the women and men that we studied, it was so fascinating. Like they do not shirk responsibility. They do not freeload, right? Mm -hmm. They really ex um, were okay to sacrifice for their pursuit of fulfillment, right? And so we feel like it's a really important indicator whether someone is actually on a path of fulfillment mm -hmm. or just being selfish or a flake, right? So what would you say to the argument that um, people shouldn't pursue whatever's going to fulfill them, they should just stick to the standard path if they're not doing well on the standardized path, they just need to work harder? Yeah. So the, the, the problem with the idea of just working harder, right, is, mm -hmm. is you've created a standardized path which... If you've seen end of average and then come on this, you realize actually doesn't fit anyone. It's like, mm -hmm. but we're going to force you to be the same as everyone else, only be better, right? Um, and then you're going to go ahead and hope that maybe you'll be happy on the back end. Mm -hmm. um, the the problem is is that it that's a pretty reliable path to neither happiness or really like reaching your full potential, mm -hmm. right? In contrast, if you build your life around a deep understanding of who you are and trying to to make choices that align to that, right? You live a life where you're constantly more engaged in what you do, more committed to it, which is a great recipe for like peak performance um, that just also happens to allow you to be happy at the same time. Mm. Do you see a shift in terms of how millennials and Gen Z view this difference between standardization and dark horse versus previous generations? Yeah. It, it, what's so interesting is um, as part of the work of... I, I co-founded a, a think tank that mm -hmm. is tackling some of these ideas broadly um, called Populous. And we've done national surveys, focus groups all over the country. Something big is changing. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's really crazy. Um, we, we know for sure that there is a silent majority in this country that actually identify their view of success as consistent with dark horse stuff. It's just personal fulfillment. Um, they're really frustrated with the systems, right? They... Um, want something different, but they don't really know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. So what we see with like the millennials is almost like an opt-out attitude, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, this is not great, um, so I'm just going to step back, right? I'll find fulfillment somewhere else. I'll just, I got to do my job or whatever, but I'll hop around. But like, but a, but a wanting for something different. Um, and I think what's great is this is where I think Dark Horse can help, right? Mm -hmm. To provide actionable ideas that will allow people to get on a path of fulfillment even though they still live in a standardized system um, while kind of foreshadowing the kind of system we can build where your public institutions will meet you halfway. Mm -hmm. And so do you think as time goes by and millennials become the old, older generations, do you think this will wear off or do you think they'll bring these ideas with them and it'll trickle down into I, the institutions? I think this is, this is going to stick around for a long time. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is something because it's not really new right like as you mm -hmm. mentioned i mean jefferson was willing to put the pursuit of happiness as a as an individual right mm -hmm. in the declaration right like mm -hmm. and he definitely meant more like fulfillment not pleasure right in that happiness um it's just we've never had the means to like execute that right but mm -hmm. not at scale really yeah. um and i think for sure we do now like this is what's so interesting is you think about the economy we have the technology we have I mean, we can build personalized education systems. We can build this, and it's not more expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, we can have an economy where I actually think it's going to be a necessity that you actually think this way about your life. Because 
it's going to be the people in, in an age of automation and AI. It's going to be people who actually know who they are, know what motivates them, and are able to to make choices about the kind of work they do that it's actually fulfilling. Mm-hmm. That are way more likely to keep those jobs. And if they don't, they're going to have a really good understanding of how to pivot to the next thing that still is meaningful and fulfilling. But if you're just like you're playing the old game and showing up as a sort of interchangeable cog, a machine's probably going to do your job. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the economy, do you think um, this dark horse system is compatible with capitalism? Do you think that would need to change? I think, I personally, I think um, it's very consistent with a society that believes in individual rights and individual liberties and even the messiness that comes with that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes way more efficient if someone gets to control everything. But um, I think that uh, capitalism plays an important role in generating options, mm-hmm. right? Um but it's just one part of the mechanism, right? Uh, I think it's just, I think complementary to capitalism are things that off, often seem on the opposite political spectrum. Like, I, I don't see how you have a society where people live fulfilling lives where you don't have universal health care. Mm-hmm. Um, you may actually need something like universal basic income. You may know. So mm-hmm. I think what's going to be interesting is as the public shifts and the, their private attitudes about success become the public view, mm-hmm. um, in a democracy, in a market economy, you know, a majority usually gets what they want, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to see some pretty fundamental restructuring of political ideas that will cross boundaries in ways that will be surprising. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how that all turns out. Um, so what about institutions, specifically academic institutions? What can they be doing right now to um, foster this dark horse growth? Yeah. So academic institutions are kind of an interesting... Kind of like, So if you we, if we think of, like, let's take higher ed, and I can go a little earlier after mm-hmm. that, like... Higher education is is <clears throat> it's so important because it's this gatekeeper to opportunity in our current system, mm-hmm. right? And either you're going to have to reduce its role, right, which you're already seeing in some ways, right? So, um, you know, over a dozen companies just announced recently that they're, they're no longer requiring college diplomas mm-hmm. for uh, jobs. It's Google, Apple, IBM, you know. So I think you're seeing, like, some think, okay, maybe this is not the signal we thought it was, right, mm-hmm. given more opportunities. But on a positive side, um, Academic institutions can do more to promote the idea that talent comes in a lot of shapes and sizes, right? And right now, as, as someone who sits in an academic institution, mm-hmm. we have a very, very narrow definition of what a successful person looks like coming in, right? Mm-hmm. We'll give you a number in terms of an SAT score, your grades, you know, maybe we'll let you, someone speak on your behalf and a few recommendations, but like it's mm-hmm. pretty narrow, right? Um, and I think that's put a chokehold historically on the kind of talented people that get through, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and so that has to change. I think that the pure market forces are gonna, they're gonna make that change, right? Because people, are, as you're seeing, they're just gonna go around it, right? Mm-hmm. Companies need people, and they need yeah. talented people. Um, I think there are, that you are seeing that change. I think even, even my institution at Harvard is making a push toward more holistic admissions, mm-hmm. which is literally like, we expect people to be very different, so show us that you're talented at something, mm-hmm. like whatever it is, right? I think that's pretty cool. Um, the other thing that I think is gonna have to change is that, w- especially the elite academic institutions, are going to have to figure out a way to uh, decouple from this weird view of quality as being equivalent to scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. Like, In what way? Meaning that, like, you know, we do this with handbags and, you know, other kinds of things where it's like, mm-hmm. this is valuable because very few people have it versus there's some intrinsic value to the thing that I have, right? Mm-hmm. I might buy property and it's like, has some intrinsic value, right? Like, and yeah, being in the right location is worth more, but like mm-hmm. property is property. If I have a nice handbag, it's like partly because nobody else has it, right? Mm-hmm. That's fine, right? Whatever. That can be a good business model for a handbag company. 
not such a good business model for higher education where you're now fighting to say we're a great university because we educate so few people, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. that's really weird, right? Like it, you really you really have to get to a place where the goal is to educate as many people as possible at the highest level, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if, if what you're offering actually has intrinsic value, you shouldn't be afraid of that, mm-hmm. right? If what you have to offer is literally like the equivalent of a luxury item, then you probably don't want to expand who you use <laughs> it, right? Um, but we're going to have to change that, right? Because you cannot simply sit on so much money and, and educate so few people um, mm-hmm. and think you're actually contributing to society in the way that we need that to happen. Now, the good news, I would say, is that um, you know higher education is really, in many ways, the end of the education line, right, mm-hmm. in these institutions. And I think some of the, 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 the best stuff is actually happening before college. So there's a big pushes around um, changing these uh, K through 12 systems to more personalized systems. Because like at some point, if you come through the system and you've already bought into the standardization mindset, it's hard for college to undo that, mm-hmm. right? Like, but if we can actually use our system of education to actually cultivate this kind of thinking in all kids, like, then like our job's half done. Mm-hmm. Does that become a challenge in terms of resources for those schools? You know, it's it's interesting. Like, maybe even a decade ago, it would have been a, a, a challenge. A resource would have been a challenge that you couldn't overcome, mm-hmm. right? Um, what I don't think people really fully appreciate is how relatively inexpensive it is to implement scalable personalized systems, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look, outside of education, right? Facebook has, I don't know, like a billion people on their platform, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like... Could you have ever imagined if you could build any company that like constantly deals with a billion people, right? Mm. The digital technologies are sort of inherently scalable, they're inherently flexible, and they're inherently precise. And that combination allows you to create deeply personal systems that at scale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we already see this right now. Like one of my favorite examples is, let's say Khan Academy, right? Mm-hmm. That's bringing mastery learning to anyone for free, right? Mm-hmm. All over the world. Or you take something like Summit Public Schools that are, have built this fantastic model of personalized learning and a technology platform. They're bringing it to any school in the country for free. And they're already in 42 states. So the resource capacity, we actually, it's there. It's just there's a lack of connection between understanding what it is we need to shift toward and how to connect the dots with that capacity. Absolutely. Uh, one more point I want to bring up. You met, One of the points you mentioned in the book is that um, for this dark horse mentality, you should ignore the destination. The destination is not the point. It's not about what you want to be. It's about you know how you're getting there. Um, what would you say for people who have that destination? Are they wrong? Should they ignore that destination? Should they maybe reconsider? No, I think the important thing I would ask mm-hmm. you to ask yourself if you think you have that destination is can you can you explain to yourself why, right? And if that answer of why is deeply connected to who you are and what truly motivates you, then it's fine, right? Because mm-hmm. at some point, even on a path of fulfillment, you will arrive at a job that feels like you were born to do, right? Mm-hmm. And you'll think this is my destination. Now, the problem is that most of the time we pick these destinations because our society funnels us into like, what are you going to be when you grow up, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, I don't know, I'm going to be a lawyer. And it's like, why? Well, my uncle's a lawyer or I watched some <laughs> LA law. Or, that's not even a thing anymore, is it? Okay. That's, um, and... Uh, and like it's not really tied to anything deeply meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that's important is that I have day-to-day choices I'm going to make, right, mm-hmm. leading up to this some long-range destination. I'm either going to make them based on what I think maximizes my chance to fit the box 
to get to this place that I think I want to be, or I'm going to make them based on who I really am. And look, at the end of the day, if you're basing it on who you really are, you might end up being a lawyer, mm-hmm. but you might end up doing any number of things that are equally as fulfilling. Um, and so I think the biggest thing is just you got to know why you're doing what you're doing. And if, if the why is external to you, mm-hmm. it, it, then you need to read about it. Excellent. That's fantastic. Uh, so one more question I have for you, and this is a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Since um, our primary audience are teachers, who was your favorite teacher? Dr. Arbuckle. Dr. Arbuckle. So I, um, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I'm a Harvard professor now, but I'm a high school dropout. Mm-hmm. Um, 0.9 GPA. Uh, got married really early. Had uh, two kids by the time I was 21. Working minimum wage jobs and on welfare, trying to pay the bills. And I had decided that I wanted something better. I had gotten some good advice from my dad that I felt I had to try something. And I decided I was going to try to go to college, which is kind of crazy given the, how poorly it worked out, mm-hmm. you know, before. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was no other way out, really. Um, but so much was riding on my interactions early on. And I went to this Weber State University, an open enrollment school in, you know, Ogden, Utah. Um, and I picked up my first class was interpersonal psychology. Um, and Dr. Arbuckle was the professor. And the good news is they didn't know who I was. So I could be somebody, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> not the screw up that I was. Um, and I was, um, I was starting to try to be a better student. I didn't know what it meant to study well. I didn't know. I mean, I just didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> About mm, maybe halfway through the semester, uh, I decided to, instead of doing my the work that was due that next day class, um, it was a night class, I had spent the previous night playing video games with my brother, right? <laughs> it was fun, but like not probably what I should have done. Mm-hmm. So I show up to class, I don't turn in the work, and um, that's normally how I would roll anyway. That's how you get a 0.9 GPA in high school, right? But um, And... She came up to me after class and she said, you know, what happened? And, I, and she's like, you didn't turn it in. And, and she's like, that's not like you. And I was thinking, yeah, that's exactly like me. I didn't say that. And she said, like, I don't know why, uh, but like, it must have been something really important because I don't think you would have disappointed me. Um, and I was like, huh. And she's like, okay, I'm going to give you two free days to get this done, um, but don't let that happen again. And so what was so interesting to me is um, there's a moment where this other person, this human relationship where I always, before, most of the people expected me to screw up or not care. Mm -hmm. And she came in expecting more of me. And almost immediately, I found myself not wanting to disappoint her ever again. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so this really powerful ability of one person to change the way that I thought about myself Mm -hmm. and what was possible I'm almost certain if I didn't have her as my first professor coming back I, I, that I'm not sitting where I am right now. That's great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lovely conversation to have. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.